Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Uh, so good morning. I'm here with my colleagues John Farrell, Chris Mitchell, and Ron Knox. Uh, and this is ILSR's special post-election episode of Building Local Power. And before we get started, I just want to specify that we are recording this on Friday morning. Uh, so we do not have a call in the presidential election and states are still counting. So FYI, if you're listening to this in the next few days, next week, uh, that's that's where we're at. Still held in suspense in many ways. So. And if you're much farther into the future, let's hope it's a much, much brighter future than than our year of 2020. <laughs> yeah, 2021 listeners, I hope you're having a great time. So to get to our actual conversation, um, if hypothetically, purely hypothetically, if I was a person who had only spent the last 48 hours refreshing results, re- refreshing the stats on Pennsylvania and Georgia and not paying a whole lot of attention to other local elections throughout the country, what have I missed? Specifically, um, I know you guys have had your eyes on some interesting ballot initiatives in different cities, uh, and I'm curious how those line up with how people came out to support any particular candidate or the different parties. Um, maybe we could start with Chris. Um, I know some interesting stuff happened in Chicago and Denver. Yes, and so I'm going to start. I'm going to start big, and we'll see if anyone can top me. But. Uh, we had a referenda to uh, do more on broadband would probably be a way to characterize it. And uh, in particular, Denver had to overcome a state law which says that a city has to pass a referendum in order to uh, basically build a network or to partner with a network, even if they just want to provide access to public housing or something like that. This is a law that's one of 19 states that have this sort of a thing passed by the big monopolies uh, through a pliant legislature. And and in Denver, they voted 83.5% to restore that authority to be able to make those decisions locally. But that, that was a tight election compared to Chicago, where they voted by 90% to 10% that the city should make it a priority to make sure that all neighborhoods have decent internet access, which I, I defy anyone to have better numbers than that this morning. <laughs> so it's Chris, very I have the best numbers. Just wait till I get to my stuff. <laughs> okay. I've got the best numbers. You've never seen numbers like these before. They're the most beautiful numbers. <laughs> It's remarkable. I'm I'm sorry that you've 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 perfected that accent just when it will no longer be that useful. God, um, I hope so. The the I mean what I think is exciting about that is that these are major cities. These are areas in which if you ask the federal government, they would say there is no problem here. There is lots of competition, there is lots of investment. This is these are vibrant places where we have lots of broadband and people are rejecting the big monopolies. They are saying we want service that's better, we want customer service that's at the human scale, we want reasonable prices. Um, and now the the bad part is I'll just um, say briefly is that there was a couple of referenda in smaller towns. Uh, there was one in Lucas, Texas. There was one in Kaysville, uh, Utah, in which they rejected plans to build specific municipal local controlled networks. 
And one of the things that we do see is that when there's a referendum for a specific project that has a dollar figure on it, it is much easier for the big cable monopolies to put a lot of money in to scare people off. I would not consider this the end of the road for those places. Uh, often we see that there will be some kind of resurgence where people will spend the next few weeks thinking about that and deciding, you know what, why did I vote for Comcast? Like, I don't, I don't know, why did I do that? And then they may have another vote in a few years in which we'll see a significant win. It's, it fits a pattern we've seen. Is that a communications issue? And I mean, why consider it after you've vote already voted? Yeah, I think it is partially communications. I feel like, and I'm, who among us doesn't do this, right? You're like, you know who you're going to vote on the key races, and then you're about to go into the polling place. You're like, oh, wait, there's other things I have to answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're just at the last second trying to remember it. And maybe your perceptions were you know, swayed by a bunch of dramatic advertising you saw. And after that, you're talking to your neighbors, and, and they're disappointed about this, and, and you learn more about it. And then you think, you know what? Why did I vote that way? This is, I mean, Longville, Longville, sorry, Longmont, uh, Colorado went through this and we just we studied it very closely and it was fascinating two years after they rejected the referendum they passed it very soundly and honestly they probably could have done it weeks later just because of how people more educated themselves after they'd cast their vote and so it's just a dynamic that we see from time to time I wonder if we could have this sort of like alternate reality conversation about three weeks after 2016 election if people might have changed their vote Chris then we you know, wouldn't all be sitting here refreshing results pages with such a level of anxiety well i guess i would say i feel like we we do have that alternate reality and donald trump has received millions more votes and one of the things that i'll i'll say that i mean i don't think there's any way we're going to avoid coming back to the national issues on this but we live in a polarized country and people have very strong feelings about uh, the parties at the national level and so uh, maybe but uh, i think that my analysis is more relevant to some specific local issues than than those sort of national ones yeah we'll get we'll get back to the national oh sorry ron go ahead no it's okay i was going to say look you know i'm curious if um uh if Maybe part of the issue on the broadband initiatives has to do with like the um, amount of and the potential, uh, you know, for funding like in big cities versus small towns, right? So like a pro, you know, municipal broadband um, uh, initiative in larger cities would have more funding for, you know, more, you know, mailers or TV ads, radio ads, all those kinds of things. We're in small towns. All the funding would come from the, you know, the corporations, the folks who are pushing back against municipal broadband. And there's not a lot of funding um, on, you know, on the other side. I wonder if that can kind of have an effect. I think that can have an effect, but I think the overwhelming effect is that it is easy to pass a general referendum. Um, it is hard for a cable monopoly to say, no, you don't want better internet access. You know, like the sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi, like you're happy with your Comcast. (laughs) It just, it doesn't work. If the question is, do you want something better? People say yes. And if the question is, should we, and I'm just going to be really hyperbolic in a way that I don't think this is the way to talk about it. I don't think this is an accurate claim. But if if I was running against it in Denver or Chicago, I would say, should we close down these city parks to have better broadband? And then you're going to see a totally different vote when you actually have to put it together. So we have to be honest about the level of support. How I read these elections is is that the cities are not taking this seriously enough. And it doesn't mean that they should spend a billion dollars to build broadband fiber optics out to everyone. 
but it means they really need to take positive steps to encourage competition and new investment, uh, remove barriers. And part of that, I think, does mean modest amounts of investment in shared infrastructure so that smaller ISPs can actually build their networks without having to pay $1,500 per customer. And if you can get that down to a few hundred dollars per customer with smart city investments that are shared, I think we have a whole, we have a, we have a marketplace that looks a lot different. That's what I think people want. Uh, all right, let's move on to John. What are your big numbers, John? <laughs> Please share. A hundred percent. I've got a hundred percent, Chris, for you. Well, Ron's going to end up with 105%. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I mean, what we're talking about for the 100% is that the the ballot measure in Columbus, Ohio, it's a state that allows community choice energy. So that allows cities to go out and be the buyer of the electricity source for their residents and small businesses. And the voters there uh, passed a ballot measure that would get the city to 100% renewable electricity by 2023. So that's the 100% part. The ballot measure did not pass <laughs> with 100% of the vote. <clears throat> But it's indicative of what we're seeing a lot around the country. Is, you know, there's over 150 cities that have already made pledges for 100% renewable energy at some date certain. Usually not quite as uh, ambitious as Columbus just passed, but 2030, 2040, and what have you. And those uh, cities represent over 100 million Americans. And so, you know, you did see climate change as a discussion in the national elections. But it's actually at the local and the state level where we're seeing a lot of movement. So here's just a few other examples. So Columbus passed this ballot measure. East Brunswick, New Jersey is also going to create a community choice agency uh, thanks to a ballot measure that passed handily uh, on Tuesday. There's a couple of ones out in California. Uh, oddly enough, Albany, California passed a uh, measure to increase a utility tax to fund climate and other local initiatives. But Berkeley, California didn't. Um, pass uh, theirs failed by just a few percentage points uh, to create a uh, to raise uh, electric bills just very slightly to uh, create a fund to do more uh, climate funding uh, uh, clean energy development at the local level. Uh, there was, however, success in Denver. So Denver also succeeded on the climate front as well as broadband uh, with a sales tax increase that will be used to. Uh, create a $40 million a year fund to invest in clean energy and climate initiatives at the local level, uh, which is pretty substantial and is uh, uh, part of a trend now that we're seeing. Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland um, have all also in the past few years passed um, either through the ballot measure or through the city council these different taxes or fees to focus investment on uh, reducing the impacts of climate change and, and facilitating clean energy. And what I find really interesting about that is not only are we seeing cities do a lot, they're also committing to very ambitious schedules for doing things compared to at the state level. So there was also a win in Nevada where question six uh, requires utilities to get to 50% renewable electricity by 2030. And yet you're seeing a lot of cities saying we're going to get to 100% by 2030, not 50%. And they're you know, putting their money where their mouth is and passing these local ballot initiatives to do more. So it was pretty, it was, it was uh, very successful of the things that were on the ballot around climate and clean energy, almost universally they passed. Uh, and they're going to be adding a lot more resources into the fight to reduce our carbon footprint and to especially increase the economic rewards for these communities uh, from doing more clean energy. Let me, let me ask you, uh, do you have a sense that, um, that was correlated with 
other people's votes? I mean, do you have a sense that there was a lot of people who voted for uh, Republicans who would maybe not support those policies, but then voted directly for those policies? And this is foreshadowing a future part of our discussion, I guess. I I think yes. I mean, I think, you know, you look at Nevada, right, where we're all waiting and waiting and waiting to see how that state is going to vote in the presidential election. But question six passed handily, uh, both in 2018 and again this year. It had to be uh, it's sort of a curiosity of Nevada where some of their initiatives had to be passed twice to be um, on referendum. And so I, I, I do think that there is much broader support for uh, action on clean energy. And you can see this, frankly, in the polls, um, the Yale Climate uh, initiative does some really good public polling regularly and things like solar energy and clean energy generally poll like 70 80 percent of the population wants to spend more money on these things so it's really no surprise that we find these things easily out polling for example democratic politicians who are more often associated with uh, action on climate change any other questions for john or should we move on to ron's numbers I've got good numbers, too. Not the best, but pretty good numbers. <laughs> All right, go ahead. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I think that's really interesting, you know, framing. Um, and just to kind of frame some of my numbers um, in the kind of national political landscape, right? I mean, you know, like we started the show here, we it looks very much like Joe Biden uh, is going to be the 46th president of the United States. Um, uh, you know, but the Democrats lost or, or, you know, on their way to losing, uh, double digit house seats, the balance in the Senate is going to end up hinging on two runoff elections in Georgia, uh, a state where Democrats haven't won a runoff election in like decades. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not lost on anyone, uh, here on the show or anyone listening that, uh, the race, you know, nationally has been extremely close, painstakingly close in some places, um, you know, and despite the persistent uh, unpopularity uh, of President Trump, uh, you know, Democrats struggled in a lot of places around the country. So that's the big picture. That's like the framing. But then you look at these um, smaller, uh, you know, ballot initiatives, these really issue specific initiatives, and you see a much different picture, right? Um, Arizona which is a state that is uh, on some networks still too close to call in a very close race. Uh, you know, Proposition 208 last night officially passed, and that would raise taxes on the wealthy uh, to help you know, fund public schools. Very progressive measure and obviously a progressive tax. Um, Arizona also legalized recreational cannabis, right, as did South Dakota, Montana, New Jersey. Um, in Nebraska, uh, a state where Trump, one handily, uh, one going away. Uh, uh, you know, voters there approved caps on payday lending interest rates, and they approved it by 83 percent. It's a massive statewide margin, right? Um, Doesn't beat 90 percent. Just, just to be clear, one hundred percent, one hundred percent of people. 83 percent is wild. 83 percent is wild. That's, I mean, this is a business regulation. This is the kind of thing that. You think um, uh, a very red state would not be into, but uh, yet it passes uh, by well, it, uh, you know massive margin. 
And I assume that it was opposed. I mean, that industry has a lot of money to put into these races. So it's not like it's something that was evenly spent. I would guess that, that the forces that would like to have not have passed that probably put a lot more money into that effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the same, you know, the same, uh, I mean, in Florida, look at Florida, right? It's a state that, you know, the Biden lost by a significant margin. Uh, yet the state approved a 15-hour minimum wage, a thing that a lot of business groups would oppose. They approved a 15-hour minimum wage by 30 points, right? This like super majority of voters in that state approved it, massive margin. So what we're seeing all across the country is this kind of divide between um, the way that people vote for these candidates uh, and the way that people vote for these very specific localized issues uh, and policies that I think there's a better connection to people's daily lives and the way people actually live and, 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 the, and you know, the business and the, and the political and economic environment around them. I just think we've seen this huge split and it's very, very interesting to me. I think it means, I think it means a lot for, for, for the direction of the country. No, I, I do. I find this really fascinating as well. And I think one of the things I keep thinking about is the, a lot of these issues that you talk about, you know, obviously, Ron, if you get 80 percent in Nebraska, you're pulling Democrats, you're pulling Republicans. And it highlights, you know, we talk about being a really divided country. And I think what we really need to say is we are really divided. Our political parties are really divided, like the ideological gap between Democrats and Republicans has grown really wide so that they can't, even though you have these payday lending restrictions being enormously politically popular, you for some reason can't pass a bill in a legislature that would get bipartisan support. And I think that really, I, I see that as not only an issue that affects like how our government works and like the faith that people have in their government to come up with solutions to our common pressing problems. I see that as a problem that directly affects the work that we do that tends to crud across in a really interesting way some of these partisan divides, you know, like uh, corporate concentration in the economy, like our work on Amazon and its threat to market competitiveness. Like these are issues that have progressive implications around, uh, you know, opportunities for uh, labor to organize, to get fair wages, but also opportunities for small businesses to survive and compete. And it's really frustrating to feel like the political parties are so far apart or so, uh, you know, locked into their ideological combat that they can't address these things that are wildly popular. I think what this, I think what it comes down to, and yes, and that's all correct. At, like, I think what this comes down to, um, I, I think it's increasingly, you know, easy to project whatever qualities you want onto politicians, right? They're heroes, they're boogeymen, um, it's very easy for people to believe the most dire predictions about what a political party or a specific politician is going to do. They're gonna, it's gonna cost you your job. They're gonna raise your taxes. Um, they're gonna take your guns, right? Like they all don't the like you. They don't like you. All the things, exactly. They don't like you. They don't represent you. All the things. What's much harder to argue about in those ways are these very simple propositions, right? Do you think low wage workers deserve to make more money? Do you want to, you know, do you think payday lenders should be able to charge whatever interest rates they want? Do you want to tax the rich to pay for schools? When, when voters are faced with these really clear policy choices, um, it turns out that these policies are actually popular and they're often wildly popular and then they win. And I think that's just such a clear lesson for our work, John, as you said, for our work and, you know, the work of organizers everywhere, right? It's no... It's no mystery that issue campaigns can be really successful and can lead to really immediate and important policy changes. You know, 
does it mean that people can just ignore candidates and candidate politics completely? No, you know, you can't um, because the people we elect control, you know, policy at every level of government. But this difference between the way that voters view people versus the way they view the issues in front of them, right, suggests to me that the country is ready for a change in our kind of larger political and ideological worldview. Uh, Before I move on to my next question, I think now is a good time to take a short break. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. If nothing else, this election has shown the importance of working for change at the local level. And coincidentally, that's what we do here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. If you want to help support our work, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org slash donate today. We need your help to produce the resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate and political power and build strong local communities. Plus, you can make sure we get to keep this podcast going. Go to ilsr.org slash donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. Now let's return to my conversation with my colleagues, John Farrell, Ron Knox, and Christopher Mitchell. So we've each had a chance to, to throw out some numbers, and I'm just I'm curious, Jess, um, do you have any numbers you want to throw out or do you want to react to um, our excitement and enthusiasm over topping each other? Uh, I've got no numbers to share with you. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, but I, I think, you know, the big question about where this conversation is going is what is there anything that could possibly fill that gap? I mean, how how it would seem that we could have someone, a party that's like, these are our issues. People like them. We're going to run on these issues. Is that going to happen? Are we going to get a new worldview that can tie these things together? Um, that's a big question, and you probably don't have an answer. So I guess what would you like to see? What would be useful for our work? <laughs> Just a, a weather vane party, one that <laughs> any issue that's got 60% support among the population is part of their party platform. Well, I, I think it is worth hitting the brakes for a second to remind ourselves that we celebrate a lot of the referenda that we liked, but in California, where you know it, it's it's considered a very progressive state, uh, the corporations passed several uh, referenda that were good, or they defeated referenda that would have harmed them in some ways, not necessarily harmed them, but would have benefited the people that work for them. Uh, the Uber one in particular, which I think was 22. Um, and and I think it's worth remembering past conversations we've had with David Morris, uh, one of our co-founders, about how we've seen referenda be weaponized by corporations because the ability of mass media to um, to really drive people in a certain way to say, we're going to legalize cannabis in Ohio by creating monopolies for corporations to control it, which was fortunately shot down, um, you know, in a previous election cycle. So, uh, you know, some of this is, is also just, it's a little bit more complicated than we've let on, I think. Well, I'll say this about, I, yes, I agree, but I'll also say that it's very easy for, well, it's not easy, but, um, you know, corporations, lobbyists, the folks that uh, can often have their hands all over ballot initiatives and referenda can make them very confusing and can make and can make, you know, referenda sound like a really good thing um, for voters when, in fact, they're not. There was an initiative here uh, in Missouri uh, that, uh, in fact, would have essentially ended uh, gerrymandering and gerrymandered districts. But the way that it was written made it sound like. Um, it was a really good deal. Like it was going to cut 
um, the amount of gifts that lobbyists could, you know, could give to politicians. And it was going to create this like bipartisan commission to look at legislative districts. Yeah. Well, in reality, what it did was it, uh, it reduced the amount of gifts by $5 and, and, and it did not say that, um, on the, on the language of the initiatives. Um, and, uh, uh, and it created a commission that was entirely controlled by the people already in power. So, um, I just think these things can be confusing. I'll say that. Yeah, and it, that's not the only example. There is one in Florida a couple of years ago where the utilities managed to get on the ballot a competing initiative to one that meant was meant to open the solar market to more competition. Utilities in, in Florida, already monopolies, had been very successful at limiting any way for consumers and or particularly for other small companies to get into the solar business. Florida residents, Republican, wanted more competition. I think probably even more support on the conservative end than on the progressive end for that kind of policy in particular. And so the utilities ran their own very confusing ballot initiative that would have essentially cemented their monopoly, but was made to sound like it was going to allow for competition. So there is, I think, a challenge with that. And so that, you know, it really frustrates me, though, because I just I want to kind of pose this back as a question, like if ballot initiatives can be successful and we're seeing that, that they are successful, but they're not a panacea is, you know, what else, what else can we do? What, what are the other strategies we have for advancing these kinds of policies? Um, you know, in, in climate and clean energy, it's been go local. It's been focus on cities, uh, focus on states. That's where you can still have policy conversations that are, you know, and and potentially politicians that are not so, like, ideologically cemented in their ways, uh, and that you can make some progress on these issues. But of course, cities don't have the power to affect some of these issue areas, because they are limited in their powers. You know, I'd like Jess to react to this, because I feel like it's a communications issue. And, and Jess is very smart on these things. Um, I feel like, one of the issues is that the people who are crafting messages on behalf of the sort of folks of us that are focused on policy, I don't think they really appreciate how many voters don't think of themselves as being a Democrat or a Republican. You know, you got all these people who are like, yeah, they're mostly going to end up voting for Democrats, perhaps because of where they live and, and what their options are, but they have different views on guns or they have different views on on um, the minimum wage. You know, um, you have a lot of Republicans that support the minimum wage and you've got Democrats that don't, um, you know, because some of those Democrats are small business owners or large business owners that have a view that may be out of line with their peers. Um, and I And I just feel like I don't know if he was doing it for rhetorical reasons, but Paul Krugman had this thing where he was just shocked at Florida, you know, raising the minimum wage while voting uh, for elected officials that oppose the minimum wage. And I don't find that surprising at all. People average your political views and then they act as though that average means something. And it doesn't. It's, it's, It's statistical malpractice. And so I guess what I would come back to is the question for Jess is, is this mostly communications or am I just oversimplifying it because I'm focused on that in this minute? Um, no, I think communications is a significant part of it. I mean, I think they're part of it is treating any voting block like it's actually um, a monolith. Um, you know, it, you know, n- not everyone in cities is going to vote for a Democrat, even if that's a trend. You know, like small business owners, they're not a monolith. Like it, it's going to go either way on policies, and so 
organizing at community levels is significant if you want to connect those policies or those, you know, referenda, whatever it is, to a candidate or to a party. Um, And if that doesn't happen, then no, you're not going to have people make that connection because people don't, most people aren't thinking that deeply about candidates' platforms. Like, it just doesn't happen. They don't have a sense of, you know, they're not going to, you were talking about reading seven books about monopolies earlier. Like, most people aren't going to read seven books about monopolies. (laughs) Like, they they don't know the history. They don't know a voting record. Like, they're just going to, they have a vague sense of what that person is. And they're going to read, you know, specific questions on the ballot as like, oh, yeah, yes or no, as I'm feeling in the voting booth. Um, They just you're right. They're not as connected as they are. And if candidates want them to be, they need to do a lot more of that community level organizing, I think. Ron, your eyes got really big during a a part of that. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, like, most people aren't going to read a pamphlet about Monopoly, let alone (laughs) Unfortunately, there's some good ones that are about 250 years old, though. I highly recommend that. <laughs> that's very, very true. That's very true. No, I mean, I look. You know, I think that's right. I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of people vote for for the name on the on the on the front of the jersey, the logo on the front of the jersey, instead of instead of the name on the back or the policies on the back, so to speak. Um, and I think it's a shame. But I think you know, like what we're seeing on the local level, uh, you know, both from these statewide referenda that we're seeing, where where, where a lot of um, you know more progressive policies are being put in place and are being approved by voters by big margins. Um, and, you know, and so on is, is that, you know, I think that, um, there is this desire now at this moment, and maybe this desire has been around for a while, but there's this desire at this moment to shift away from the, um, broad governing philosophy that's kind of controlled, um, our politics and our economy for the last 40, 50 years or so. Right. And I, I, I call it, you know, neoliberalism. What does that mean? Right. It just, it's, it just means that, um, this, you know, political philosophy that shifted power away from our democratic institutions, um, to the market and to powerful corporations and to experts that support these corporations and their, and their interests. Um, and, and it's all happened through these policies of, uh, you know, deregulation, privatization, austerity, pro-monopoly, and, you know, all these kinds of things. And so as, as an example, Ron, let me just see. If I, so as an example of that, I think this was laid out really well in um, the recent uh, book by Barry Lynn, The um, um, uh, Liberty uh, from All Masters, in which, you know, for a lot of, for most of the U.S. history, for instance, prices had to be clear and non-discriminatory. And more recently now with Amazon, and we think of it commonly with airplanes, but it's arguable about that. But but now it's not clear what the price of a thing is that I'm buying. And I'm paying a different amount than my neighbor. And so that's an issue in which previously the government said for the market to work well, you have to be clear and transparent prices. And we've said, no, we're going to let the market set that and keep it secret if it wants to. That's what you're talking about in terms of like neoliberalism in, in terms of inaction, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly right. And what it leads to, I mean, it leads to people getting ripped off. It leads to uh, you and me, consumers getting ripped off. It leads to um, really big, powerful sellers being able to rip off suppliers, all these kinds of things. And the and the sum total of this is our modern economy, right? The, the most unequal economy in a century, um, wage stagnation for decades, monopolies across industries, all these kinds of things. I think some of these ballot initiatives that we've seen and the local um, uh, you know, organizing initiatives to get these ballot initiatives on the ballot and to get them passed um, 
it, you know, it shows us that the path that we've taken to get here to this economy uh, is wrong, and we need to find a different one. The other thing that and and so and so this organizing that this really on the ground, hands-on, grassroots organizing that's led to these you know successes is really important, and it gives me a lot of hope. And the other thing that gives me hope uh, and confidence that we've moved beyond. Uh, this kind of uh, you know unequal um, uh, you know monopolized economy uh, is the House Judiciary Committee's investigation of monopoly power in tech and the findings that not only does it exist but uh, you know it's damaged the economy um, and these companies should be broken up uh, uh, you know and regulated. This report was embraced by um, uh, you know a Democratic majority, the members of which have a wide variety of viewpoints um, on business regulation. Uh, and some of the proposals in the committee's report were uh, embraced by Republicans as well, such as Ken Buck and others. This is important, right? And, and I think the election just reinforced to me that, um, that Americans across the country, uh, even if they don't, even if they're still just voting for the logo on the front of the jersey, as I said, they're actually ready to push back against you know, corporate control of their lives and their democracy. Uh, and push back against this hands-off, pro-monopoly approach to governance. Right. Yeah. And I think, to bring it back to me, communications, people do feel the effects of that significantly, you know, unequal economy. They just, you know, you know they're, they're not being described in ways that they can connect to like, oh, yeah, like I have, you know, no savings and, you know, look at, you know, what Amazon's doing in my neighborhood. Like, it, if we can connect on those things, then people do get it. Like there is hunger for that change. I think. I agree. I think, I think a lot of this comes back to mass media and I still blame television news more than anything else. I think, I think you have blamed television news in every, <laughs> every podcast we've had out lately. <laughs> I guess the question is whether I'm being convincing because at least I'm consistent. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I just find it frustrating because people want to blame Facebook and Facebook sucks and people should blame Facebook for lots of things. But Facebook isn't manufacturing the content. Fox News, CNN and others are. That's the content that is kind of warping people's brains. And it just so happens that Facebook is the carrier of that currently. Um, but what it comes down to is I feel like people are more positive and hopeful about their local situation than they are about things that they learn about through the media. And most of our media today is designed to, uh, to stimulate us and to get us scared or emotional in some way that will lead us to watch more of it. And I don't feel like we've yet reckoned with how television has hacked our brains, which were designed on the savannah, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years in certain ways that we trust our eyes. And, and it's different for radio. And actually, I think the way we interact with podcasts is different and is much better for informing ourselves. And that's why I always harp on TV news. I think the visual medium screws it up. But fundamentally, I would just bring it back to it's easy to fool people with television news. And I feel like that's where a lot of this comes from because people feel that their lives are getting worse. They have less control. Their their dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. And then they, the TV tells them, like, this is why, because those bad people there are trying to screw you in this way. And that's a message which has been designed by very smart people with lots of science to try and figure out how to distract you and get you to react in a certain way. Yep. 
no argument here. <laughs> so anyway, I would just say that I, Deb Fallows and James Fallows have a great book. Um, I think it's called Our Towns. I forget their latest book, whatever it is. It, it covers some of this. And I think it's helpful to get a sense of the dynamic. Um, and, you know, as we're, as we're sort of, I assume, running out of time here at some point, um, there's a lot of things to be hopeful for. I mean, I think there's reasons to hope. Um, laugh as hard as you will. Maybe we won't see the country torn so much apart by immigration in the near future as we see, um, at least current extrapolations suggest that Republicans are pouring or, or, or pulling more votes from communities of color than they expected. And so maybe white supremacists will have less of a role, um, white nationalists, as Donald Trump exits the party. And we'll see, you know, more of these issues um, being less the, the sort of flashpoint that I think has been really ugly for a lot of us when we look at how um, some of the racial issues have been demagogued. And so I, 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 see, I think there's some reasons to be hopeful as we move forward to break past some of that. And um, and and I'm just I'm going to come out of this hopeful one way or another, because that's what I am. I'll just say really, really quickly that just, in, it's just as far as like, you know, hope. And I mean, I think there is a lot of reason for hope in those, you know, particularly like in those ways, in those kind of, um, uh, you know, ideological ways. But like it is <laughs> once this election is over, like we are in the worst part of this um, year long, possibly multiple year pandemic. Like it is bad. Um, and uh, and it, it looks like it's not going to get any better this winter. And we are in the middle of a small business extinction event that's really tied to this pandemic. And I'll just say that um, I will be more hopeful and my like level of confidence in, 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 in this, uh, you know, this incoming government to really govern and to really help people will increase when I see real concrete, you know, proposals put in place to help small businesses and to rebuild the small business economy, both to rescue those that are still, um, alive right now and floundering and, you know, and struggling and to create um, the infrastructure and, and, and the incentives for folks to, you know, uh, uh, to be entrepreneurial, start new businesses and, and kind of regrow that economy from the ground. So uh, speaking of being hopeful um, and maybe a little bit of magical thinking here. So with the Georgia races going to runoffs, there's a chance, at least, that we could end up with Democrats in control of the Senate. Do you all have thoughts on what that would mean for your work? Yeah, I, I guess I just really quickly, though, want to piggyback off what Ron was saying. And as as an element that I'm hopeful to see in whatever administration we end up with. So he has highlighted the antitrust findings of the House Judiciary Committee. I think one of the things that people don't often realize and you know to also benefit from chris's reference to tv news is that the connections aren't being made for folks generally speaking at least those that don't read seven books on monopoly between the way that these structural market problems that are highlighted in that report also spill over into our politics whether it's ballot initiatives or anything else and just a quick a quick illustration of that is in ohio they passed a bill last year called house bill six to essentially bail out coal and nuclear plants owned by First Energy and other companies that had previously been monopolies, had been forced into and actually volunteered to go into a competitive market, realized they couldn't compete, and then so therefore used their monopoly power and political influence to buy the votes, literally buy the votes, the FBI is investigating, uh, of 
legislators to protect them from competition. And so I think we have to just keep in mind that whatever big picture we want to see from the incoming administration, it needs to start to break those chains of corporate power in the marketplace and the way that it spills into our politics. So, you know, I, a Biden administration with a Democratic House and Senate, I mean, David Roberts from Vox has said this pretty pretty well, that basically all the good climate policies we've seen have resulted from unified democratic control of governments because the Republican Party has decided to vacate on climate and energy policy, uh, with the exception maybe of uh, helping to renew some federal tax credits for clean energy that are great for people who are wealthier and don't really help a lot of Americans, unfortunately, uh, benefit from clean energy. So I'm hopeful that what we'll see is, I mean, if nothing else, a willingness to even talk about climate change. One of the things we've seen from Republican administrations at state and federal levels is to expunge the language of climate change from any conversation in the state, as though ignoring it will help us deal with it. Um, I am hopeful that this like horrendous hurricane season, the wildfires in California, et cetera, are helping to helping us turn the corner to realize that actually this is a problem we have to deal with. Um, and I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Biden administration with a Democratic Congress could actually pass meaningful climate legislation that could, frankly, just pour lots of money into our cities and towns and communities and states to just invest in clean energy things that will boost the economy. I mean, we have a great opportunity here. Um, and we are, we're actually talking about this. Uh, we have a rare look at federal policy in a program called 30 Million Solar Rooftops, a project that ILSR is leading that is looking at how do we combine our clean energy policy with economic stimulus and in a way that, uh, you know, tries to address some of these issues of monopoly power and racial inequality all at the same time. And I think, unfortunately, it would take probably a Democratic administration and a Democratic Congress to pass those things. But I'm also hopeful that lots of those things are things many people care about. Uh, I I don't know if you're familiar with the Property Brothers and their, you know, uh, uh, show about like fixing up homes for folks or whatever. So Jonathan Scott, one of the Property Brothers, was helping folks go solar as part of this, the home remodel projects. And he's actually coming out with a documentary, not a like home remodel show, but a documentary he did with PBS about how we could overcome some of these issues of monopoly power in the energy system to address climate uh, and clean energy. And he's got all these conservatives who are talking in the trailer for this thing who are saying, we really need to do solar and clean energy. It's really important to have more energy independence. So I think we have an opportunity potentially, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it would be successful regardless of the outcomes in the Democratic, or sorry, in the Senate runoffs in Georgia. But but the evidence so far has been if we want to make progress on climate and clean energy, then you unfortunately you, you've had to elect Democrats to do it. I'm quite worried uh, in ways that I was, I was I was very hopeful prior to, and now I'm quite worried about broadband opportunities in the new Senate. Um, many of us expected that Comcast would be very powerful in a Biden administration, but the Democrats have put down strong markers that they really wanted to put money into broadband. And not only that, but getting beyond the focus on rural and, and the back to urban where we started this show, um, recognizing the need, particularly for communities of color that have been left behind. 
And so while I am very optimistic about hopefully leaving some of this um, divisive racial language behind that I think we've seen um, from a, a white nationalist presidency, um, I, I think we're going to see more of a return to the big corporate uh, friendly policies of less populism from the Republican Party. And so I kind of feel like we're not going to see very much broadband investment from the federal government. Um, I would expect that to the extent that we do, it will probably be wasteful uh, subsidies to Comcast and and Charter Spectrum and that sort of a thing, rather than programs that would structurally solve the problem, create a real market, uh, which would make future subsidies less costly because subsidizing a broken market is just really, really bad policy. But I'm, I'm kind of afraid that's where we'll end up. Um, so, um, you know, it's one of those things that like, it's just a different set of problems. Um, and, and I'm a little bit disappointed in that in some ways, you know, I feel like 49-51 Senate one way or the other actually doesn't make that big of a difference on this issue. When you look at the power of these monopolies, uh, I had thought that like, um, giving Democrats a decisive majority would have led to them being bold for a recovery package, which would have involved broadband spending in the way that we saw energy spending so well snuck into the stimulus. Um, you know, the opportunity to make these bold policy movements, uh, it doesn't come along often. And I thought the Democrats were ready to take it. And now I just don't see a path for, for getting there. Although we will work very hard <laughs> to, to build that path nonetheless. Yeah, this was supposed to be a hopeful note to end the show on, Chris. <laughs> you know, I I don't I, you know I don't want to sit here and, and 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 just like and keep ragging. I don't want to pretend that all Republicans have racial animus. I don't believe that, but I can't overstate enough how glad I am that I think many Republicans will um will really tone that down. And I don't know what's in their hearts. I don't really care what's in their hearts. What I care about is is people having the opportunity, no matter what their skin color or background is, to live a good life in the United States. And I feel like getting rid of the Trump administration will move us closer to that goal. So uh, for me, that's enough to, to take away on this, I think. I'll say real quickly, uh, maybe on a more hopeful note to end here, um, I, you know, I think there's a lot from the independent business perspective, I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit that uh, an incoming Biden administration um, and uh, a new Congress can get done that will really help small business. I think things as simple as um, enacting the paycheck guarantee proposals by uh, Senator Sander and Warner and Representative Jayapal, that would be a uh, uh, you know, a huge step towards sustaining small businesses throughout the COVID crisis. That would be huge. Um, I think uh, any initiatives to overhaul the, uh, uh, the Small Business Administration would be extremely important, reorienting uh, its lending programs to deliver more funding to uh, small and BIPOC-owned uh, businesses and uh, to invigorate its analysis and its advocacy functions. I think that would be really, really important. Um there's a, a bill by Senator Rubio uh, called the Freedom to Compete Act that would ban employers from using non-compete agreements for entry-level and low-wage workers. That should be immediately passed by both chambers and signed into law. That would do uh, a lot of good to uh, uh, you know to workers across the country. There's all this stuff that's out there. All these all these you know bills that have been introduced and have languished. Um, all of these things that can be done through executive order and executive function. Um, that can really help people, help workers, help small businesses, help communities. Um, it just it just has to happen. Hopefully, this incoming administration and incoming Congress are motivated to do these things. 
Yes, and and I, I just wanted to say that I think it's really important that we not fall into this blue team, red team, where we feel like if Biden administration is getting unfair criticism from a right-leaning press, that we feel like we have to defend their inadequacies. Uh, we really need to hold Democrats' feet to the fire uh, on these issues, push them hard, and and not get into this sense that we can't criticize Democrats because we feel that that some of the Republican uh, folks are, are making over-the-top accusations that are out of line with four years of the policies they had just been pushing. Yeah, as uh, tired as we might be after this week and the last four years and, you know, a pandemic that we're still in the middle of, uh, now is not the time to relax on any front, really. So on that note, thanks, everyone. Is there any final thoughts, comments? You know, this has been, I think, less organized than I wanted it to be. I know I wandered more than I wanted to. One of the things I hope people will take away is is don't take too many firm conclusions until we see what more of the data says. The exit polls are all wrong that we're seeing on the news. You know, there's there's a lot of things in which we're junkies and we're trying to like, get information, but there's bad information out there. Many of us poisoned our brains with months of polls that were wrong and we're having trouble adjusting to the reality because we're trying to fit it to what we thought reality was that reality never existed we were some of us some of us have been saying the polls are wrong for the last few months chris (laughs) thank you jess i will listen to you more in the future you have you have definitely proven to be more wise than than many others but i think it's important just to remember that there are significant ways in which we take numbers seriously more seriously than we should when they are not definitive and i think this is a reminder um the referenda that we're seeing are real right i mean people are um they support these policies and they are um they recognize uh, that their lives are getting worse. And, and it's up to us to, I think, do a better job of connecting that to how they have less control over their lives because government has given more control to uh, the, I don't want to say the market, I want to say the the monopolies because I will firmly def- defend the market. I know that we're all on the same page there, but I just try to be more consistent with the language. Um, we want functioning markets and where we can have them. So um, there I go rambling as I'm trying to apologize for rambling. Thank you all. This was a great discussion. Thanks, Jess. Thank Thank you, Jess. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Del Fiaco, and our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Del Fiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.